1979, the average college kid had a problem. If you wanted a cold drink in the evening, you were out of luck. Unless, of course, you had a mini-fridge in your dorm room. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. But first, a message from our featured nonprofit, Room to Read. Find out more at roomtoread.org. World change starts with educated children. We believe the best way to create long-term systemic change in the developing world is through the power of education, specifically literacy and gender equality. Literacy is the key to a better life. When children cannot read or write, they're denied the opportunity to reach their full potential. My business partner, Steve Dennis, and I set out to solve this problem at the little college we went to near Boston. Here's the deal. In those days, you could buy a mini-fridge, if you bought a few hundred at a time, for about $85. You could also rent a mini-fridge for $85 a year. For the 85 bucks that the student would pay, they would get a clean, working mini-fridge delivered right to their dorm room the first week of school. And then, at the end of the semester, we'd pick it up. It turns out that the 85 bucks paid for the entire fridge forever, so that the second year, all of the reorders basically paid for our maintenance and our storage. Year after year, an entity could live on that. And I'm guessing that 30 or 40 years later, those very same fridges are still being rented out. To deliver the fridges that first year, we rented a U-Haul. We didn't buy a U-Haul. We rented one. And fortunately for me, we took out the insurance. Because as we parked on the steep hill at College Avenue, the emergency brake on the U-Haul didn't hold. And the U-Haul, door open, went backwards a few feet, and eight mini-fridges fell out of the back of the U-Haul, crushing the Ford Mustang that was parked just behind us. It's worth understanding, what do we make, what do we own, and what do we buy? Should we start our own insurance company when we need insurance? Should we buy a U-Haul to own forever, every time we need it? If we're starting a business... Who do we hire? What do we use? Back when I started Yoyodyne in the early 90s, there was no such thing as MailChimp. It cost us half a million dollars to build the software tool we ended up using to send millions and millions of emails every day. If we had had MailChimp, we could have done it for a couple hundred bucks a month. We would have gladly rented it instead of owning it. How should we make stuff? Back when the Industrial Revolution was young, that was a good question. After all, factories hadn't been built yet, hence cottage industries. Cottage industries where you worked in your cottage. Maybe you finished the entire good, or maybe you did part of the work and then carried it to someone in the next cottage who would finish it. And then when it was finished, it would be brought either to a market or to the person who bought all of them. It took a little bit of a leap to say, no, 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 no. We're not going to do this in cottages. We're going to build a building where we're going to work together. And to this day, there are still artisans and craftspeople around the world who work from a cottage. I visited a man in India who weaves silk 
from scratch to make saris. That's a cottage industry. But more and more, what we're seeing are factories. What's the point of a factory? Well, the economics of a firm make it clear. First, you can put a steam engine into a factory, hard to do in your cottage. That steam engine would turn a shaft, a long pole that ran the length of the factory. That's super efficient because it means that anybody who needs to use a power tool can walk in, throw a belt over the spinning shaft, and it will turn their drill or their sander or some other device. That's why the early factories were all set up in a straight line, because everyone had to be under the rotating shaft. This means you need shifts. It means you need people who come at the same time so they can work together in coordination, creating efficiencies. Getting things in sync, in the right place, at the right time, created productivity. It meant you needed to hire people because it was cheaper to hire people even when they weren't busy working on a given job because of the coordination and because of the information. That the information that you could share back and forth meant that there wasn't a lot of slack in the system with people taking profits. That instead, you had an efficient, taught system where a product or service could flow through it reliably. Ronald Coase wrote about this, and he quantified how we think about what makes it worth having a firm to begin with. He described the math behind the theory of the firm. The theory of the firm explains why a corporation should bring something in-house or not. The key elements of the theory of the firm are how hard is it to coordinate everyone's efforts and how imperfect is the information. So coordinating efforts. If you're working on something, let's say a novel, and you've got a month to get it copy edited, it doesn't make sense to have the copy editor in your office, on call, working for you. It makes way more sense when you need a novel copy edited To be able to say, well, I've got two or three people I trust. Who's free? Send it to them. You don't need it today. You don't even need it tomorrow. Next time you slot it in, do the work, send it back. As for the second half, information, well, in a case like this, the amount of information being transmitted back and forth is close to perfect. You send the manuscript to your copy editor. He or she sends it back. You can look at it and decide if the work was done well or not. That's really different than the challenge, for example, a restaurant might have. A restaurant can't outsource the chicken Kiev to a freelancer down the street. Because when you need the chicken Kiev, you need the chicken Kiev. You need it now. Number two, the amount of information that's carried in that chicken Kiev is very difficult to measure. How do you know whether or not the freelancer left it out on his kitchen counter for six hours, meaning that the salmonella inside the chicken is going to kill your patron? Not good for the restaurant. Imperfect information makes it difficult for you to rely on a cadre of rotating freelancers. You can't be sure of what you are getting. So back to the idea of the refrigerators. 
1979, it wasn't easy to go buy a hundred mini fridges. Today, you just type it into Amazon, they deliver them overnight. Done. But in 1979, we had to find a distributor, establish a line of credit, take delivery, find the warehouse, put together the systems so that those refrigerators could be tracked and cleaned and delivered and all that other stuff. U-Haul made it easy to rent a truck. They were one of the pioneers of this idea of the mesh. The mesh is Lisa Gansky's term for the sharing economy. Lisa Gansky is one of the pioneers of the internet. She was one of the co-founders of the first online search engine called GNN. She was on the team that first did advertising on the internet. Years later, writing in The Mesh, she points out that the two things that Coase talked about in the theory of the firm work much better when the internet arrives. It makes it much easier to find people who can do work for us when we need it. And it creates lots more information. Bitcoin isn't really about a manipulated currency. Bitcoin is really about the blockchain. And the purpose of the blockchain, this open, auditable database, is to get better information from people who aren't under our authority and control so that the mesh, these shared resources, can get ever more efficient. So back to this idea of how big should the firm be. The consulting and accounting firm Deloitte has 84,000 employees who last year generated about $18 billion in revenue. What reason can there possibly be to have 84,000 employees in a world where a team of two or three can access just about any resources they need using the magic of the mesh and the internet? Well, I think it's easy to see that an, a firm like Deloitte is flat. There isn't a deep, deep hierarchy of bosses upon bosses upon bosses. That most of the people who work there actually never interact with most of the other people who work there. It's this vast matrix that spans the globe. And the thing that Deloitte offers its clients is the ease of tapping into the network. That's what you're buying. You're buying the fact that with one phone call to your account manager, you can find the person who has been vetted, thus this whole idea of imperfect information, as good enough to solve your problem. So in many ways, Deloitte is in the refrigerator rental business. That what they're doing is showing up, charging you in two weeks, three weeks, a year's salary for that person to pay for the fact that when that person isn't busy, they're still going to be on staff waiting for your call. The mesh has all sorts of fascinating side effects. It changes the way we get around. It changes the way we buy things. And it's going to change the way we organize our firms. So let's look at the problem of information and availability and gigs from both sides. Like, why is it that Deloitte has more than 80,000 employees, many of whom could happily make a living on the outside? Why is it that someone like Lee Clow, the genius behind 
Apple Super Bowl commercial of 1984 works for Shiat Day instead of, say, for Apple or on his own? Well, if you're a freelancer, a consultant, someone looking for a gig, the thing you worry about the most is where is your next gig going to come from? You like doing the gigs. You like the freedom and the responsibility and the speed. You like the fact that when you're busy, you're doing really well. But the fear in the back of your head is, where is the next gig going to come from? There's an information problem, which is the people out there don't know who you are, don't know when you could offer, and don't know when you're free and available. That's the seduction of Uber. Uber offers people who can drive all of those things. They brought the customers. And what about if you're a customer? Well, if you're a customer, someone who's going to hire, say, Deloitte, you have a challenge, which is you know it would be cheaper and more leveraged to assemble your own crew of freelancers, people in the gig economy, but it's really time-consuming. It's time-consuming to find them, to schedule them, and to sort them out. But that's what the Internet's good at. And so we're seeing this revolution occur on both sides of the equation. More information being exchanged. Information about who's good, information about who's available, information about what you should pay, information about who you should work for. Drip by drip, the systems are changing. The laws of what makes a firm work, the economies of the firm, keep changing because it's easier to rent than it is to buy. If you wake up on a beautiful morning in Santa Monica and go for a walk, you better be careful because on almost any corner, it's likely you will trip over a bird electric scooter. Their model is 100% based on this idea that you don't need to own it. That they're being so profligate with their electric scooters, there are no docking stations. You pay a little bit of money using your app, you get the scooter that's right in front of you, you scoot, 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 and when you're done, you just leave it wherever the hell you want. Which makes a lot of sense if you can buy a lot of scooters, if you want to fill the world with this matrix that's easily accessible. On the other hand, this side effect of the leftover scooters sitting around becomes a new problem in the new economy. In my town on the East Coast, it's now happening with bicycles. Yesterday, I saw one, then I saw a second, then I saw a third. I saw five in the course of 10 minutes, sitting by the bike path, sitting in front of the supermarket, sitting at the train station. When we share the bicycles, we actually don't need that many. If I added up all the bicycles in my little town that are sitting in garages, not being used today, there's probably 200 times as many as there are these other bikes sitting in the street, lime bikes, just waiting for someone to rent them. In addition to it happening on our street corner, it happens behind the scenes. When you buy one of those fancy food boxes, the kind you hear advertised on podcasts, who do you think packed it? It's possible that the food box company did, but it's more likely that the behind-the-scenes company that packs boxes for lots of people did. There's no reason for the person who's good at selling food boxes to also be good at filling food boxes. And when you call tech support to get help on that piece of software, it's possible you're not talking to the company 
that programmed the software. Outsourcing that work to a different organization, one that does just what they say they're going to do, is happening more and more. Which leads us again back in this big circle to the problem of information. There's an expression, Gresham's Law, that says, bad money drives out good. A lot of people don't know what that means. It's simple. When there's counterfeit money, when there's suspect loans in a bundle, the good stuff doesn't want to show up. Because if you can't tell the difference between a good one and a bad one, don't buy any of them. The challenge going forward as the mesh becomes more and more powerful isn't going to be how do we buy enough scooters to get our thing to take off. It's going to be how do we give people the confidence to know that the scooter is going to work. Now, if it's a beautiful Sunday afternoon and you're just for a walk, it doesn't matter whether the scooter works or not. But what happens when the mesh involves a surgeon who's showing up to work on our appendix? She's only going to get one chance. We want to make sure she's the right surgeon, in the right place, at the right time. The information about that human and her background and her success rate becomes ever more important because we're no longer relying on the institution because institutions are becoming more plastic, more flexible. We're not really sure who's making what, who's controlling what. What we're caring about is the information itself about that cog, about that system, all along the supply chain. Who touched it? When did they touch it? Why did they touch it? When they touched it, did they make it better? This is the big transformation in the post-refrigerator world. Because in the old days, there was nothing but molecules. You looked at a fridge. There was a fridge or there wasn't a fridge. But now, the information around it all is what we're actually engaging in. Moral hazard is this idea that there's a disincentive if you, for example, get an insurance policy and then burn down your house for the money. Insurance companies have a lot of problem with stuff like that. That the alternative is knowing more. Knowing more about who we're working with, what they've done, and where they've been. And the future is going to make LinkedIn look like a tinker toy. Because as organizations become more loosely linked, less based on real estate, and more based on this mesh, this network, this lattice of people, we're going to know ever more about each person's role, what they're touching, when they're touching it, what they're contributing to it. Because our relationships to one another are going to outweigh our position at that desk. That it's super hard to replace somebody who's worked for your company for 10 years because they're at that desk. And so we wrestle with it and we think about it and we put it off and then maybe we try to remediate the problem. But in this economy where the theory of the firm has been upended by better and better information, not just about where that scooter is, but on who Bob is and what Bob is working on, it means that in any given moment, we've got seven people we can put at that desk. And we're not going to give the benefit of the doubt to the person who's been at that desk the longest. The ratchet of capitalism and competitiveness won't let us get away with that. So we're going to have to be intentional about who we hire, 
for keeps and who we use as a freelancer, as a contractor, as a contributor. We're going to have to be intentional about what kind of project we're building in the first place. So think about the work you do and how many people touch your work before it gets to the person you're serving. How many of those people actually work for you and are under your control? It's fewer than it used to be. That it's easier than ever to start an operation, an organization now. You don't need a factory. The factory's over there. You don't need to build the internet. Someone already did. You don't need to build the software. Here it is. That as we weave together these components, we are weaving together our own mesh. And we're going to have to take a good, hard look at where we fit in. If you are part of the mesh, not the organizer of it, but a contributor to it, how do you leverage your reputation? How do you keep track of your reputation for the next person? How do you expose it? In the old days, you were your resume. Your resume, that list of famous places where you used to work, that's how you proved who you were. Now, you are your work. What did you work on? What did you touch? What were the outputs like? That as a freelancer, as somebody who shows up and is part of this system, the question is, which gigs are you going to take? Are you going to take the gigs just when you're not busy and it doesn't matter what they are? Or will you choose to take gigs that you are proud of? Gigs that add to your list of projects in a way that someone with good information will be able to point to and say, yeah, her, we want her. So many choices in front of us. It's happening faster than ever before. It's all a click away. Your customers a click away. Your suppliers a click away. Your vendors are a click away. Who will you click on? Who will click on you? That's a choice. And each of us makes it or has it made for us. Thanks for listening. In a minute, we'll be back with answers to your questions from last week's episode. But first, a quick message from our featured nonprofit, Room to Read. Find out more at roomtoread.org. Literacy is the key to a better life. When children cannot read or write, they're denied the opportunity to reach their full potential. This is especially true for girls who are most at risk for remaining uneducated and illiterate. In the developing world, especially Asian Africa where we work, children go to school with blank walls, few black and white textbooks, and no children's books. Teachers are undertrained and often managing a crowded classroom. At home, parents generally cannot read or write. It's a pretty critical situation. We need to think big about this by finding ways to be focused, innovative, and results-oriented. If we can get children reading independently, if we can invest in equal education for girls, we're also going to impact so many other issues. Education is a game changer. Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi Seth, Alicia from Charleston here. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth, my name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey Seth, this is Rex. Hey Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Thanks as always for your questions about last week's episode. If you've got one to ask, please visit akimbo.link and press the appropriate button. We love to hear from you. We're going to start off with three 
questions from Learning House in Nepal, just showing all of us how small the world really is. Namaste, sir. This is Sony from Pokhara, Nepal. My question is about uh, communities in which trust and security are less common. What are your suggestions for delighting people with experiences? Thanks, Sony, for this. You correctly point out that not all communities view the world with the same amount of trust, that people's expectations vary. They vary by geography, but they also vary within a culture. No community, no culture, trusts everything all the time. So it's all on a spectrum. And I think that the key to unlocking it is to understand that all humans come from this place of seeing fear and status. Status is something that people want. Fear is something that people try to avoid, or at least many people. The opportunity is to figure out how to make promises and keep them. It's tempting to make huge promises because it feels like huge promises are needed, that this community, this group needs what you have to offer. But people are skeptical. They've heard huge promises before. They've been disappointed before. This is true in wealthy communities and unprivileged communities as well. So the opportunity here is to make tiny promises, the tiniest possible promises, and then keep them, and then do it again, and then do it again, and then do it again. That's one reason why showing up on time is so important, even in a culture where people don't show up on time. That's one reason why short-term promises that are kept set you up to be able to make ever longer-term promises. Thanks for that question. I said this is Nong from Nepal. My question is, how can we identify the right messages to send to audiences? Thank you. No one has any idea what the right messages are, particularly when we're on the frontier, particularly when we're trying something new. How can we know for sure? We can't. The essential understanding is to realize that like a safe cracker who's sitting down, she's going to spend two hours trying to open the safe, you don't expect that it's going to happen right away. You know that you can't know. And so the work is this persistent cycle of testing and measuring, of bringing your best version of yourself, your most honest version of yourself, to the people you seek to serve, to see what lights up their eyes, to see which promises give you traction, and then repeat it to get smarter as we go. Hi there, this is Michelle asking a question from Nepal. When designing and building thoughtful community spaces, what are your recommendations for balancing the known and the familiar with inspiring novelty? Thanks, Seth. Hey, Michelle. Thank you for checking in with us all the way from Nepal. I think the word you're missing here is tension. A community center has to be safe. It has to be familiar. But if growth is going to happen, there also needs to be tension. That on the journey from here to there, there's always the nagging question of, this might not work. This is unfamiliar to me. What if I make a fool of myself? So if there's too much tension, if you open a swim club and add a 48-foot-tall diving board, very few people are going to jump off the 48-foot-tall diving board. But if over the course of months or years, you 
offer ever higher diving boards, then you can build the diving team. So the tension. The tension is you knowing it might not work, but the people in the community center also knowing it might not work. I saw the video from the latte art competition that they ran at Learning House in Nepal just a little while ago. And when you see the faces of people who are working in this community, doing this fun activity, something that was so far outside the range of something they thought they'd be doing just six months ago, I am confident that that didn't happen overnight. It happened over time, bit by bit, adding tension to the mix. Hi, Seth. This is Dan again in New Orleans. You conclude this stinks by encouraging marketers to recognize humans' outdated sensory judgment systems. Can you decode an example where you have appealed to our Jacobson's organ as a marketer? Thank you. Thanks for coming back with one more question, and here's my answer. If you look at the 18 books that I've published, if you've looked at the special projects, if you look at the new website at cess.blog, I hope that you will see that it doesn't usually look like the typical self-published book. That when I show up to give a speech, I don't show up in a t-shirt and ripped jeans. That if you come to one of my conferences, lunch is not going to be a chicken sandwich. That the last time we did one in New York, we argued for hours with the caterer until we were finally able to serve, by the way, bakery gluten-free baked goods for breakfast with fresh coffee from Balthazar until we were able to serve vegan sushi for lunch. Why? Because these activities go to a different part of our brain. They make us feel like we belong there. We notice things that say, people like us, yeah, we're doing something like this. So I can't recall the last time I did something that intentionally went to Jacobson's organ where I was spreading pheromones. But I can tell you that sound and light and taste all work together. That if your conference room reminds people of a detention center, great work isn't going to happen there. And the money you spend to renovate it isn't money wasted. It's not a luxury. It's going to the part of our brain that's going to respond to your generosity with insight and extra energy. So on a regular basis... I'm looking really hard for the nonverbal cues, for ways to spread my ideas without necessarily having it be about just the idea. The rapper matters. Thanks again for listening. We'd love to hear from you next time. Akimbo.link. What are people saying about the Alt MBA? I just I needed something something more a way to level myself up and find other find a connection and really be challenged. Maybe I operated for ten years in my life and this is what was my best space. But then in Alt MBA you learned what was your best on Monday. It's going to be better on Tuesday night, and you're going to do it in a space where everyone cares about you so much that they're not going to let you off the hook. Alt MBA, in fact, is not a course; it's a workshop. It's one month in which a professional coming from all over the globe can work with 100 other professionals that will make you a better leader. Not enough time. We know it's not enough time. Do it anyway. So many people want to self-edit. They want to say, oh, I have writer's block, all these excuses, basically. And so this is just an exercise in getting out of your own way and also collaboration. It's more about how you think, what you're willing to offer yourself and, and the group. I have a clearer vision with my company and who I'm trying to build it for. 
really having a lot of skills to speak more confidently about who I wanted to be and where I wanted to go. Find out more at altmba.com.